Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Danesburg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Danesburg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church located in beautiful Southeast Wisconsin. I'm going to bring my series to a close today, series on politics. And uh, I'm going to do so by really talking through someone else's work. Robert Golding has written an article in Themelios entitled, Give Honor and Vote, a reflection on the Christian's voting conscience in Romans 13. So I want to back up before I dive into this and reiterate something I've already covered through the form of a question. If... If God expects government to establish a common morality, not a common religion, as we have looked at, a common morality that squares with with Scripture, and Christians are to work for uh, Christian conceptions of justice in the public square, what is a Christian to do with a personally flawed governing leader who may, on points of public policy, share the same moral space as the Christian citizen? This is really the question that Golding was asking in his article. Can Christians vote for flawed candidates if their policies seem to possess overlap, at least at points, with their own moral compass, biblically calibrated? Okay. Now, he dives into and does an extensive dive into Romans 13. So, I want to read that passage just so it's refreshed in your mind. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so I want to summarize at least the first part of Golding's article, and then I want to read for you his application section. Christians, he's saying, are to be subject to the governing authorities. This is, this is Paul's contention. God has established these governing authorities, so Christians who resist these governing authorities save for occasions where they are governing out of the biblical bounds, as we find in Acts 5. Christians who resist will incur judgment. 
Now, if the historical reconstruction of Romans is correct, Paul is writing during the reign of Nero, before he put Christians to death as scapegoats for the great fire of Rome. That's important to keep in mind. Nonetheless, the fact that Nero would do such a thing speaks to his lack of character. Otto Kiefer has written a biography on uh, Nero, and he writes this, The young Nero developed sexual characteristics so numerous and so conflicting that it is astonishing to find them all in one and the same person. Nero was a good husband who, nevertheless, had strongly homosexual tendencies. In addition, he had many extramarital relations with women. His character also contained sadistic elements. So this is the one this is one of the governing leaders Christians were to honor. Though he was a deeply flawed character, not everything he stood for or did was evil. How do we know that? Well, just by looking at Paul's words. Clearly, Paul affirms leaders like Nero are capable of doing good. There are moments when rulers with deeply flawed character are not a terror to good conduct, but a terror to bad conduct. Paul is saying there is overlap between what the Christian would want from its government and what the government wants or does. Some things secular and flawed rulers want are the same things Christ the King wants. So with this very mixed bag where you have deeply flawed character in a governing ruler still managing by common grace to rule at times in ways that harmonize with Christian virtue. Why is Paul commending to us to honor them by submitting to them? It should be noticed in the passage that he's exhorting us to submit to these governing authorities not on the basis of their personal character, but rather the office they hold. It was common knowledge that the Roman authorities were not exemplars of moral virtue, but they were to be submitted to because of God, the God-ordained function they served. N.T. Wright puts it this way, Paul was always ready to honor the office, even while criticizing the present holder. Being able to say, the existing powers are ordained by God, while living under a system that, as he makes clear elsewhere, was bristling with potential or actual blasphemy and injustice, is part of Christian maturity, a part he urges his Roman readers to make their own. So how do we do justice to this? I want to pick up Golding's article and read. Here's what he writes. He says, lest we contextualize Paul and the Romans to the point of relegating all application to history, we do well to remember that although Romans 13, 1 to 7 has a clear historical, literary, and theological setting that prohibits using it as a tool for foisting various political agendas, Paul's discussion of the relation 
of Christians to civil authorities nevertheless remains on the level of general principles. These general principles can be used to help guide political interaction today. The findings of this study do not indicate that Christians should wholly endorse whatever secular government they find themselves under. Paul and the apostles clearly instruct and enact opposition to bad leadership. However, the insights above do indicate that Paul had a category for honoring leaders that did not include morality within its consideration. Paul and the Romans were capable of giving honor to debauched sinners because they were providing a good service. They were enacting, in that limited sense, the will of God, and they were instituted by God. Therefore, Christians today should simultaneously rebuke the sins of their political leaders while rendering them due honor for the God-ordained services they provide. He continues, Christians in modern America seem to move in the opposite direction. It is common to hear Christians say that they are refraining from voting for a political candidate because both candidates are morally reprehensible. In America, voting for a person is seen as not only as an endorsement of political candidate's character, to be sure, voting in democracy would be completely foreign concepts to Paul and the church in Rome. However, their capacity to give honor while simultaneously rejecting sin should free the American Christian's conscience to vote for a political candidate that displays non-Christian actions, even sinful ones. There is nothing inherently contradictory with desiring a certain political candidate to take office, even though his scruples are far from exemplary. Surely, Paul, the Romans, and every Christian alive during the egregious later reign of Nero were all pining for the days of Claudius, who brought relative peace to the land despite his being a sinful pagan. This biblical category of honoring those who are sinful unbinds the conscience of those Christians who seek to vote for various political candidates in order to promote social order and gospel proclamation by means of religious liberty. Of course, one could argue that voting for a candidate in a democratic system is de facto an endorsement of the individual's behavior. The purpose of this paper is to show that such an argument from a biblical perspective is at best an uphill battle. Paul clearly operated from a paradigm that had categories for honoring those who were morally debauched. This paradigm is analogous to the system of democratic voting. For Paul, one is able to acknowledge political good in a spiritually depraved individual. For a citizen of a democracy, one is, or at least should be, capable of acknowledging potential political value while simultaneously rejecting spiritual and moral sinfulness. To a lesser extent, this is apparent in all sectors of theology. Theologians regularly acknowledge and reject moral failures of their forebears 
who they nevertheless appropriate at a theological level. One thinks of Bartians rejecting Bart's adultery or Edwardsians rejecting Edward's slaveholding. Indeed, embracing anything anyone does as a Christian requires some level of moral rejection since no one is good except God alone. Therefore, it seems clear that desiring a certain person to obtain a certain political office should not require the wholesale endorsement of the individual. To be sure, wholesale endorsement seems to be the case in American politics. This indicates political idolatry, not biblical pagan Christian relations. The Bible offers a better, more nuanced way. We should honor the good things bad politicians do. Obtuse, black and white thinking is not Pauline, Reformed, or Christian. As Reformed thinkers in whatever sphere, we must distinguish. This is not a difficult or new concept. Indeed, it dates back at least as far as the first century when Paul wrote Romans. So, in, I mean, to summarize this, what Golding is saying is, does voting for a political candidate with flawed character automatically mean wholesale endorsement? No. Not any more than it did for the first century Christians to honor a debauched political leader like Nero. So can Christians vote for political candidates with flawed character? Yes. So on this point, the Bible is far more nuanced than American Christians tend to be. So what I want to do to wrap up is is to give four summarizing conclusions about this series on politics. This is the longest series I've done, four parts. Okay, I want to summarize it. Number one, politics is more religious than we think. And religion is more political than we think. Here's what I mean by that. Human beings are inescapably religious. Every human being is. Even an atheist is inescapably religious. How so? Because when you boil it all down, every human being has a particular way of seeing the world and provides recommendations for how to live in it based on that view. Jonathan Lehman writes, What a nation's constitution and laws represent is an amalgam of competing values and religious commitments cobbled together over time by compromise and negotiation. In the battleground of gods called the public square, the law books present a record of which gods won a majority when the vote was taken or which could secure a high court decision. So the public square, the political world, is nothing more or less than a battleground of gods, each vying to push the levers of power in its favor. Like it or not, all Christians are political and we inhabit a political world. Second, God has directed government to establish a common morality, not a common religion. The seeds of this are located in the Noahic Covenant, which I went through in detail in part two. God has not authorized government to punish bad doctrine. He has authorized government to punish bad behavior. Now, an important question arises if this is the case. What if you have a government that doesn't acknowledge the truthfulness of God's word? Should we expect them to advocate for biblical morality in spite of that? The answer, yes. We see that throughout Scripture, 
Just because governing leaders don't acknowledge the God of the Bible, God still expects them to govern according to a biblical ethic. Romans 1 and 2 advances the notion of natural law, that is, every human being, by virtue of of being made in the image of God, has a God-given intuition concerning right and wrong, and God will not give them a pass. Third, Christians should work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. Since God expects government to establish not a common religion, but a common morality in line with biblical justice, Christians ought to work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. We do this in numerous ways. We do this through the ballot box, through organizations we choose to be a part of, through speech, through calling leaders to alignment with biblical morality. In our political ecosystem, and we're blessed in this way, there are numerous ways Christians can work for Christian conceptions of justice in the public square. Fourth, and finally, a Christian's conscience is free to vote for flawed candidates. Now, to be very clear, (laughs) the only candidates you have ever voted for were deeply flawed. It's not as though when you go into the ballot box, you have a choice between somebody who's flawed and somebody who's not. No, the only options you have are flawed ones. But sometimes we like to be judge and jury and rank them according to personal standards. Even though the only candidates we vote for are flawed, doesn't mean God would not have us vote. This was the argument of today's episode from Robert Golding's article in Themelios. Romans 13 is far more nuanced than we realize. Does voting for a political candidate with flawed character automatically mean wholesale endorsement? No. Can Christians vote for political candidates with flawed character? Yes. So there you have it. Those are my thoughts on politics for now, all four episodes. I know it was long, and maybe it scratched where some of you itched, others not. That's okay. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. <laughs>